This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Young people are suffering. Youth unemployment rate has been on the rise. Salaries have stagnated for close to 20 years, despite the massive increase in cost of living. Cost of education is at an all-time high, and upon graduating, most people find themselves in massive debts. Millennials these days cannot even afford adequate housing on a single paycheck, despite it being a basic necessity and a human right. The COVID-19 pandemic has only made things worse. But how has things gotten this bad for our young generation? How much of it is directly tied to capitalism? And could socialism be the solution? I'm Dashan Johan, and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Arvind Kadir Chelvan. He's the Youth Chief of Party Socialist Malaysia. Welcome to the show, Arvind. To kick things off, how did capitalism come to be and what role did it play in global development and production? So when we talk about capitalism, private ownership of capital, uh, we have to look at it in the context of what it replaced. So right before capitalism was uh, this uh, system of governance and economy called feudalism. Uh, kings, monarchs, they had their downline with his barons who owned land and the barons had uh, workers who were peasants who did not own any uh, land, did not own any capital and they were essentially farmers who produced goods uh, that are taken by the baron and then the baron pays a tithe to the king. So that is the system that capitalism replaced. So as towns began trading with each other, as uh, people who had some sort of capital began trading with each other, uh, the relation between uh, the, the need for uh, uh, economic relations with uh, feudal lords gradually diminished uh, to be replaced by companies, to be replaced by merchants, uh, and then that uh, is essentially the stage uh, from which capitalism grew um, to essentially then expand into things like industrialism. But we have to understand that during the growth of capitalism, the big uh, essentially developments uh, come across the form of colonialism, essentially. So when, uh, and I'm talking mainly about Europe because that is what essentially developed these capitalist relations first and then uh, exported that uh, as uh, a means of uh, production, essentially. With the need for grain, with the need for goods, gold, all of these things uh, are needed by uh, these, these merchants. They then expanded out and uh, essentially colonized um, a lot of uh, other countries, especially in what we now call the third world, to gain um, these goods, to gain more labor force. And uh, essentially, that is uh, how colonialism came into uh, the picture as well. So capitalism essentially started off as uh, basic trade that is uh, uh, not related to the feudal lords, but then it grew out to become the feudal lords of their own, essentially, where they sat at the top and exported goods from uh, other places. Capitalism has its place in history. I don't think people deny what it had done at one point. It increased um, production um, and it was a, a necessary sort of um, evolution from feudalism. But is capitalism still a system that works today? I think firstly in history, uh, even Marx would say that capitalism is something that uh, was 
somewhat quote unquote destined to happen or so, uh, somewhat will happen because of the relations between the feudal lord and, and, and the peasantry basically. But the but was that good? I I wouldn't cast a value judgment on that. Because, right. Mainly because uh, what it grew out of was this kind of uh, it didn't really replace. The, uh, the the structure that feudalism had basically where uh, the person who uh, owned a lot of capital or owned these means of production was the one that uh, capitalized on the uh, amount of value that is generated. So uh, historically, was it a system that worked? I wouldn't say that it did. It's just a system that happened. So does it work today and what is the main problem of capitalism? I think the principal critique of capitalism from uh, socialist analysis or Marxist analysis is the very fact that those who expand labor, as in those who, those who uh, uh, work to change raw materials into goods, and now it's more to services, are not the ones who enjoy the amount of value that they create. In fact, this value is owned by someone else who owns the business, who owns the machinery, the means of production, land, whatever, and they themselves divvy out a portion of that value to the to the worker. So the person who does not expend any labor, who who is only at a place where he can take advantage of the labor of others, because he, uh, they have owned capital before, is the one that is gaining more, gaining the disproportionate value from the worker without any input from workers essentially. That is the principal argument of uh, an economic problem that. Uh, capitalism produces essentially this unequal uh, relationship that is unequal in two terms. One, unequal because one person has a lot more money and a lot more power, and another because the person who doesn't have money is the one who works the most and does not get uh, his share of, uh, of value. We accept that, yes, these are the people who are going to like build factories, but on whose money? You know, How did they get the money in the first place? How did they obtain the capital? Capital doesn't fall from the trees. You know, you have to create and generate value. And the generation of value is by the input of labor. Without the la- without labor, you won't change uh, silicon into handphones, right? So you need people to like expand that labor. And by expropriating the value that is created by the labor is how capitalists accrue capital, enough capital to then uh, put out into the uh, so-called free market and uh, create these uh, sort of jobs. One of the common arguments um, we hear um, uh, in defense of capitalism is that it's a system that rewards hard work, that under capitalism, everyone who keeps their heads down and hustles their behinds off, you know, will be able to elevate their lives materially. And without the system of capitalism, um, these capitalists um, argue that, you know, what you will get is a society of people who are just lazy, um, people who don't want to go to work at all, because there isn't this sort of engineered competition that, ca- that capitalism creates. So what are your thoughts on this? The profit derivative that capitalism drives off of is a smokescreen, basically, because essentially this kind of like competition with each other is caused by only a small number of people actually own the capital. So people who are like us uh, are left to like compete with each other to sell the only thing that we have, which is labor time, to uh, gain a little a sliver of what the capitalists have to offer, basically. So this whole thing of you just have to work hard and you will make it is is this this pipe dream that capitalists give us because when you think about it right how much time of how much how many hours would you need to work 
to gain a billion ringgit. It is like hundreds of years, 200 years, you need to work 24 hours a day. It is nonsense. Hard work does not get you there. What gets you there is expropriating labor of others so that you generate the value from the products and services that they create and then you take that in the first place. The system of capitalism is uh, thriving off of the back of uh, people working hard. Yes, people working hard, but not to enrich themselves. They work hard to generate value that someone else thrives off of whilst giving them the crumbs uh, that are left on, uh, on their plate when they're done. We have to think about the concept of work itself, basically, because what capitalists uh, say is that um, work can only uh, exist if there is a profit narrative to it. As in, only when uh, you are uh, forced to do the work because without it you will starve, then uh, and then only will people be, uh, what do you call that, pushed to do the work, basically. But we have to question this. Like, is that really true? Um, uh, people people uh, gain a lot of uh, a lot of fulfillment from uh, from expanding labor on something that they love to do. You know, some people like to like sing or dance. Some people like to write, and they can't do that because there is no profit narrative. Then they have to, they are forced to go into something that generates wealth uh, for themselves, but actually it's actually generating wealth for the capitalists, basically. But if there was a system that enabled them to exp uh, to what do you call that expand their labor in something that they really wanted to do then i believe and we all will believe essentially that they will do that because that is what they love to do and we have to separate this concept of labor only being tied to material gains rather than this kind of like innate spiritual need that people uh, uh, would seek seek for basically a capitalist would argue that yeah, but if we just let people do whatever they want to do, what if whatever they want to do isn't what society needs to perhaps survive, to endure, to move forward, to prosper, to progress? Hence why we need you know, people slogging it out in factories. Who makes those, like, uh, what do you call that, those value judgments, basically? You know, you're not allowing society to choose what they want to do. You take, for example, uh, let's take, for example, society needs to eat bread. Uh, we, they need food, they need grains. You think society doesn't know that? Uh, you think, like, society doesn't doesn't think about these things, oh, okay, I need to, like, go, I, I need these agricultural producers to be available for me to eat? They do. So if we do not allow the uh, society itself to organize itself, to understand what are the needs for itself, and so people who are interested in producing these things and go in and do it, rather you as a capitalist make those decisions on their behalf. That is an extremely uh, parochial thing to do, essentially. Um, and, and if capitalists were so uh, concerned about the well-being of the masses, then let the masses decide what they wanted to do in the first place. How... Who made you king, basically, to like decide this is what you need? I am producing this much rice for you, not for me. And don't look at the amount of money that I'm making. I'm making sure that rice is available to you. That's nonsense, basically. This kind of whole notion of I'm doing this for your own benefit is extremely condescending towards the ingenuity of the masses. Is, is capitalism, as in the private ownership of capital, the only way to create jobs? Can people not come together, work together to like, you know, generate value? If you look at the cases for in, in, in 
places like Argentina, where the private owners of factories essentially like decided they didn't want to run them anymore because it wasn't profitable. Workers got together and formed collectives to run those factories by themselves. And there was no private ownership. There was a collective ownership of the means of production because all workers there were equal, basically. So this notion of I need to exist for this whole system to uh, for for this whole like jobs to be created for the value to be created is not true because we there are alternative systems that we have seen that where that has worked very well even better sometimes than privately held firms uh, which proved the fact that it is not necessary for you to exist for capitalism to exist for these jobs and values to be created essentially another argument we hear is that capitalism simply grows and evolves based on this idea of supply and demand. But does capitalism actually follow the rules of supply and demand? Because the rules of supply and demand is very simple. If there's a demand for something, something will be first created to fulfill that demand. And then if the demand is high and the supply is low, the prices naturally grow, go up. If there's a low demand, high supply, prices go down. But the fact is you only need to look at the property market whether it's in Malaysia, the US, many other countries, to know that whatever I just said about supply and demand, it's, it doesn't apply to the property market, right? Um, you constantly hear about the average Malaysian, you know, even degree holders not being able to afford adequate housing. And housing is a basic necessity. It's a human right, but people cannot afford it. Uh, there are new developments, property developments every single day. But you drive around neighborhoods, there are so many empty houses, yet there are new developments popping up here and there like mushrooms. But still, nobody can afford it. That means the supply is there and the demand is also there, but something doesn't add up. Does this problem exist because of capitalism as well? Well, cap what is capitalism, right? So capitalism is, is driven by a profit narrative. So if the higher the profits, uh, the more, uh, uh, what do you call that? Um, the more the market tends to skew in that direction. So we see these houses that are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of ringgit uh, costly. You know, um, A lot of people are out of the price range. Basically, they cannot afford it. So when you think about this, why are developers building houses that are out of the price range of everyone else? Because those are the, those are not the people that they want to sell it to, right? So the people they want to sell it to are maybe expatriates who come in and uh, want to have a second home in Malaysia with through the Malaysia My Second Home program, for example, that exists. The government steps in sometimes to help developers sell off these uh, these houses uh, by creating, you know, uh, financial products uh, within banks, you know, better loans, lower uh, you know, better loans, multi-generational loans, some, some were even talking about. And so the developer is so confident that they can actually sell these houses. They are creating these houses because they are going to generate more profits off of it. That is capitalism. I feel what we've just talked about, the very same notion applies to food as well, right? We talk about people every day, we hear the news. People are starving, struggling to put food on the table, especially after the pandemic. But yet, restaurants every single day, major supermarkets, um, huge franchises, they throw tons of food away instead of donating to, you know, soup kitchens, the needy. You know, people say that capitalism is what keeps um, the, the, the survival of the human species. We keep 
pushing society forward. Um, you know, this is the reason uh, why, you know, people can, uh, you know, get things that they want, buy things that they want and, and all of this. And capitalism is, econo- is an, essentially economic structures are supposed to solve economic uh, problems, right? But yet we see a, a, a situation here where we have enough production, we have produced enough already, we have enough houses, we have people sleeping on the streets, but yet we are saying, I would rather let them sleep on the streets and die and, you know, get into drug addiction and all of these things rather than put them in a house that is empty. Yeah, that, the thing is, scarcity is a huge part of capitalism, whether it is um, real scarcity or scarcity in usually generated scarcity now. Going back to your um, uh, example of the supermarket, why do they throw things away at the end of the day? Because if they don't, then and they give it uh, to uh, people for free, then now they have bread, right? Now they have food. They are not starving anymore. If they're not starving, they're not going to buy from me and I'm not going to generate profits. That is the scarcity that they are creating. Although the, the food is there, the supply is not there. So the person at the end, the, the consumer, is starving. They are they have scarce food. So that, that, that is a scarcity that is generated, basically. When in reality, it's not that the food is not there, it's just that it's not being given to them unless there is a profit narrative, basically. And that is essentially what you call that, the, the, if I can say, the, both the moral failing of capitalism, but also the economic failing of capitalism as well. On the show with me today is Arvind Kadir Chelvan. He's the youth chief of Party Socialist Malaysia. After the break, I'll be asking him what Malaysia would look like if it was a socialist country. We'll be back with more on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Arvind Kadir Chelvan. He's the youth chief at Party Socialist Malaysia. And we're discussing why a lot of young people suffering today is directly tied to the system of capitalism and if socialism could potentially be the solution. So, Arvin, another argument we hear is that capitalism drives innovation, that without our current economic um, structures, especially when we look at the country, hyper-capitalistic countries like the US, um, that we wouldn't be where we are today as a society, that we wouldn't be as technologically, as technologically advanced as a society if capitalism doesn't exist or did not exist. Is that really true? No, because most of the innovation, let's look at the hyper-capitalistic nation of the United States. Most of the innovation comes from publicly funded, um, what do you call that, projects, and publicly funded uh, research through um, public universities, uh, publicly funded uh, research uh, uh, companies, and uh, organizations such as NASA, Velcro, for example, came from NASA. Um, And the more that we look at it, the more we see a lot of these breakthroughs are actually not coming from a profit narrative, basically. Because when you think about it, right, it's actually not that uh, productive for a capitalist to sink in a lot of money into research, uh, because uh, research is private narrative. It takes time to really get down to the, the, the crux of the matter and to commercialize it takes time as well. Better to let someone else do it. I'll sell the products that I have right now so that I get enough uh, enough of a cash flow in, basically. So 
capitalism doesn't drive innovation. What capitalism does is co-opt innovation and make money out of it, basically. So uh, there's this there's this really interesting concept um, called uh, planned obsolescence that you have see in iPhones, iPhones, other other phones, basically. That after a few years, the, the the phone that you have is garbage, and you need to buy a new one, basically. But Oftentimes, there there is technology that exists enough so that you can use this phone for decades, basically. But they won't do it because they need the cell phones. So the profit narrative here doesn't really drive innovation. In fact, it keeps innovation back because sometimes you might have products that you need to sell out because you already invested in those products and you need to sell them. And that means you need to suppress innovations that will make those products obsolete. One thing. Second thing, you have the technology, but you don't want to sell it out to people because that means they won't buy more of your products in the future, as well. So that is another thing. So the profit narrative of capitalism pulls back innovation rather than drives it forward. We talk about the pandemic, how people have suffered because of it, lives have been lost. In Malaysia, suicide rates increased to a point of four to five suicide cases on average a day. Things are looking very bleak. But for some people, the pandemic, if you look at their lives during the pandemic, it has seemingly only improved their lives. Um, While people have lost jobs by the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, there are also people who have made billions and billions and billions during the pandemic. Talk to me about how the pandemic benefited the capitalists? Oh, that's a very interesting question. So we saw that uh, Malaysia's richest people, 50 richest people, I think they, they, are, they are wealth increased by something like 14%, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and that is interesting, actually. You know, you're thinking about why. Uh, well, they didn't have to pay as much uh, for um, um utilities and stuff like that. those are minor costs basically they can uh, lay off people because they want to protect their uh, their their profit interests as well things like glove companies uh, profited massively pharmaceuticals profited massively uh, food delivery profited massively so um, the, there are unique conditions within this pandemic that has benefited uh, capitalists way more than it has benefited anyone else basically uh, and that's because they own the means of production. There is no threat to their, uh, uh, to their way of life or to their jobs because they own the jobs. They own the factory. They own the machinery. They can fire other people before they fire themselves. So this is why uh, capitalists are shielded against any type of, um, of crashes or bubbles or anything of that sort. Most of the time, basically, because they own what is used to generate the wealth, basically. Whereas people like you and me who depend on selling our labor uh, are left to suffer. And it's not just that, right? When we look at a lot of um, companies in the US, it was extremely prevalent. But we hear about it in Malaysia as well. How during the pandemic, while people were suffering, um, while people needed um, social safety nets, better access to healthcare, all of various aspects, right? A lot of factories, they did not want to close. Bosses of factories were bent on keeping, you know, their their foreign workers, for example, their laborers constantly working, um, poor living conditions. 
um, and all of that, right, cramped factory conditions, working conditions. Um, we hear in the US how Amazon um, delivery riders and other, all these major, major corporates and the people at the bottom, they don't have sick leave, although it's like uh, during a pandemic. Because to the capitalists, all what they want is profits. It's, it's all about constantly making profits. And that is their prime focus. And for people like Jeff Bezos and all of that, while his workers were suffering, he was making billions on their suffering. Yeah, exactly. Completely. Uh, but then this is a double-edged sword, basically. Because one, uh, they lay off workers. That means they take away the means of, uh, of, of, of producing um, enough money to survive. Two, they overwork their workers uh, they, uh, so that the amount of money that they make proportionate uh, is vastly disproportionate to the amount of hours that they work and uh, the amount of uh, labor time that they uh, and the amount of mental health suffering and all those things that go into uh, your um, what do you call the oppression of workers basically again all driven by a profit act. you of course are part of a socialist party what exactly is socialism and how is it the cure to the problems that uh, have been caused by capitalism? Okay, so what socialism is, is a huge thing to like, it's a huge field and I encourage everyone to please go and read up on specifically Marx uh, and Engels to get uh, uh, an understanding of the economic analysis of uh, socialism basically. Um, socialism, as I said before, is taking away the profit narrative by collectivizing the means of production. So, Means of production here are machinery, factory, land, all of those things that you need to produce something, basically. And if we collectivize it, collectivization means like the common people own it, everyone owns it. Then you give them the right to make the decisions of what to do uh, with, uh, with with uh, producing something from that area. For example, if it's a factory, it's a car factory, how, uh, what is the volume of production, how much everyone gets paid. Uh, what do you call that? And all of those decisions then go on to uh, make uh, that. That is the alternative form of uh, organizing production, specifically that comes uh, from uh, socialism, basically. So the whole idea is the fact that the people who produce the value are the workers. So the first, the people who have the right to uh, decide on where that value goes are also the workers. So we need to uh, uh, we need to understand this uh, uh, this is the crux of the economic argument and the way that we move forward is thinking about how we then relate this to the uh, conditions of a country and how we can then do this up. So that is one thing. But I keep saying worker. I just need to like make this distinction. Marxism has grown from Marx. Basically, it mm -hmm. is a it is a robust. Uh, what do you call that set of work that has been built up by many, many months before. I have to make the distinction that when we talk about, uh, I say workers a lot, but when we talk about uh, this, we have to talk about uh, people who are, are not workers, but essentially ha should have the same rights uh, as all workers, basically. People who are disabled, people who uh, do a lot of care work that is not recognized as formal work, uh, even women, especially women who are take care of families, who uh, expend a lot of mental and emotional labor in that sense as well, should be taken into consideration when uh, it comes to collectivizing the means of production. So I've only given one part because I said this, it's huge, basically. Uh, but the, the a lot of the problems can be solved if we change the relation of the common person to the means of production. 
Arvid, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but Malaysia isn't a hardcore capitalist country like the US. We are capitalists, but we are not like the US because we have adopted some socialist policies since independence. Talk to me about some of the socialist policies we have a- adopted and how people you know, take that for granted or may not even realize that they are socialist policies to begin with. Firstly, let me address the hardcore capitalist part. We, I believe, we still are a hardcore capitalist right. uh, uh, country because the relation of capital to the workers is is still alienated. They are still taken away from their power. But uh, we have adopted a lot of uh, policies that can be considered to be socialist. Actually, we learned it a lot from socialist countries during our development, uh, countries like China and uh, Vietnam, stuff like that, basically. So the US, for example has this extremely terrible healthcare system. It is completely private-based, uh, as far as I know. Uh, I think it is completely private-based, and it's completely dependent on insurance. If you don't have insurance, then you are basically. Even an ambulance ride costs 4,000 uh, US dollars, which is, I can't brain that. <laughs> I cannot understand. Yeah. That's a lot of money. So um, uh, what we have done really well, and I and I have to give credit where credit is due, is our healthcare, public healthcare system is extremely affordable. I just give a personal example. I had to get a tooth taken out a couple of years ago. In the UK, that would have cost me hundred pounds easily, and that hundred pounds is like six hundred Malaysian ringgit. I came to Malaysia on my holiday, and then uh, went to a, a clinic to uh, They checked it out. They said come back in two weeks, and the total cost was two ringgit. So. This is extremely affordable, very yeah. affordable, and uh, quality healthcare. Basically, of course, not for every, uh, not for everything we have. We don't have enough specialists. So, uh, and Dr. Kumar from uh, the, the chairperson of our party can tell us a lot more about that. We don't have enough nephrologists. We don't have enough oncologists who are within the government sector. So there is still a reliance on the private sector, or the wait times are too long, or the quality of service may not be there. But for what it is. I think our uh, medical, our healthcare system, public healthcare system, as underfunded as it is, is actually a very good example where we are leaps and bounds better than even a lot of Western countries, actually, and particularly the United States. Uh, let me just take some time here. When I talk about them being underfunded, this is also a, a, um, a cause of capitalism because profits are driven by private uh, enterprises and private enterprises are not public healthcare, basically. So if the government, which itself is capitalist, wants to gain profit from these uh, private enterprises to whatever means, um, they need to make sure that the alternative is the public healthcare system is so terrible that people don't have any other choice that go to the private healthcare. So the underfunding of our healthcare system is also due to capitalism. So what would work or labor look like in a socialist country? Can you paint a picture for us? That's a very interesting question because we need to understand about two things. One is socialism and one is development. Socialism cannot be achieved by a click of a switch. Uh, We need to develop the means of production for our country. So let's say tomorrow a socialist party takes over Malaysia. The relation between capital owners and workers will still be there. The people who own, who own the means of production will still be capitalists. We will still be relying on international trade, which is also held by capitalists. So we need to think about how we uh, jet, how we restructure labor and work to ensure that we do not get screwed by this capitalism in the first place. 
but also we uh, uh, what do you call deliver a better system of, uh, of, of of work in Malaysia because a lot of my analysis is about Malaysia. Every country is different. Mm-hmm. In Malaysia, uh, what we have is uh, a good stranglehold on the economy by GLCs and GLICs, government companies and government investment companies. What we can do is if we can socialize this, make them not for profit, uh, make them uh, eventually make them worker owned because we cannot again split the switch to like make them worker owned because the workers were not actually like uh, trained enough yet to take over the, the the management basically so if we do these two things then and then from their profits we reinvest it to uh, create more publicly uh, what you call the available jobs then we kind of reduce the dependency of uh, the economy on the private sector and then when we reduce the uh, dependency of the economy in the private sector, then we can introduce things like uh, taxation laws and stuff like that. And really to drive them down a way so that we take over the means of production and the means of production is now owned by all of the workers and all of the people in Malaysia, basically. How will work look like in this transitionary period, which is necessary again because we cannot super switch? It would look a lot like it had before, but with the key understanding that the people who make the decisions are now the workers and if we can even extend it out to make it extremely transparent and uh, get the uh, vote in of the masses, we can even uh, uh, do that to socialize it even further. But the sectors that we uh, focus on, the uh, uh, development that we need to do, the amount of uh, factories that we need to build or we need to take over, the products that we create would be more or less uh, similar in this transitionary period. But after that transitionary period is when we can take advantage of things like uh, automation, take advantage of things like um, uh, the, the amount of value that is already produced from these uh, companies uh, that we that is owned by the people to then allow people to, uh, what do you call that, uh, be more free in choosing, picking and choosing the, the, the kind of work that they want to do basically. So with more automation, you don't need to uh, rely upon so much the labor of the people. What you can then do is uh, shorten the work pe- uh, the work days, the work weeks, and then allow them to be like, okay, you know what? We don't have enough jobs uh, in these fields. Why, why not you guys just create more movies? Why not uh, you know, uh, engage in uh, singing or dancing or writing stuff, more artistic things that would not generally uh, the, 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 the profitable thing to do? Uh, which in the transitionary period we need to keep uh, aware of because we are still doing international trade. Uh, but that is how we then slowly uh, change how labor even looks uh, in a socialist country. Everything that you know we've been discussing, what you've brought up, it seems very obvious to me that capitalism, you know, it can be argued whether you know it had brought some good to our society, whether it did not, but. I think a lot of people, when you crunch it down, you ask a lot of millennials and all, even if they don't understand these jargons, if you just look at it from a certain policy, how they want to improve their lives, it seems like capitalism cannot improve their lives. It feels like socialism is the answer. Yet, there is this huge misconception about socialism. Why is this so? Why do people get scared of the word socialism and assumes it means like the end of freedom and fundamental liberties and your your country is just going to be bleak and it's going to be dusty and people are going to be, you know, just bored. And, and these are the images that you get 
when you think of socialism, right? A lot of people have these images. Why, why is this the case? Simply put, if I want to come and kill you, will you allow me to buy a gun? <laughs> like, it, that's, that's the thing, basically. Capital owners will not uh, allow an alternative system that will then paint, that will then paint their demise, basically. So they won't allow that system. So there's a lot of misconceptions that, well, not well, yeah, misconceptions that have been created by um, by uh, what do you call the capitalist uh, organizations, people, countries to paint the fact that socialism is not the answer. It will make you poor. It will make it will kill you. It will put you in gulags, stuff like that. But when you really get down to think about it, that is that cannot be further from the truth, basically, because it is in fact. Capitalism that does most of these things. If you look at a lot of the quote-unquote failures of uh, socialism, oh, Venezuela is poor. But why is Venezuela poor? One, the the uh, the people that own the means of production in Venezuela to a large part are still capitalists. They are private-owned firms, and they cause a lot of things like uh, again generator scarcity essentially. Two, huge embargoes put on by the United States on Venezuela. Uh, to cause them to uh, end up with this economic strife. But even with that, in 2018, Venezuela, uh, what do you call that, delivered 2.3 million free houses to their people. So is, do you see the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the thing here, basically? There's a lot of misconceptions uh, that is generated by uh, capitalists. But I don't want to absolve anyone of their, of their wrongdoings. Development of socialism is hard. A lot of mistakes were made. In the USSR, uh, this was made uh, through a bureaucratization of the party that then led to the eventual uh, dissolution. In China, uh, there was uh, a, a few problems with uh, uh, things like the Great Deep Forward and the Great Proletarian uh, Cultural Revolution. Um, again, both of, the, both of these things, again, may came out from the development of socialism, but they were negative and we need to address that as well. In Malaysia, the Communist Party of Malaya famously uh, uh, were uh, an organization that is vilified by Malays, uh, specifically by, by everyone in general because of their brutal repression. Uh, but that came out after the Japanese occupation and uh, there's a lot of violence there as well. Uh, that, uh, that was not the correct way to move forward, in my opinion. So it's, it's too... too a large extent due to the pressures of capitalism, both uh, through misconceptions and also through actually fighting and destabilizing these countries and systems. But to a smaller extent, also the mistakes that were made by past socialists uh, and past socialist systems that we need to learn from and rectify as we move forward. All right. And as we wrap this conversation up, Arvind, perhaps you can give us some examples where socialism has worked and worked well. So we can take Actually, there are a few examples. We can take, for example, Cuba, uh, which is a uh, country that is near near the USA. Um, Cuba is an excellent country because it has two things that were enabled by socialism. One is, well, a few things. One is uh, the mass expansion of uh, healthcare and free healthcare at that. So public healthcare was massive. There was there's this one excellent interview by this great uh, socialist called Michael Parenti where he talks about when he went to Cuba, uh, he went to a, a village in uh, the, the hillside areas and uh, he just asked one of them, why do you like Castro so much? So they, they brought him to like, uh, what do you call it, the hill's edge and they showed him uh, 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 
a building in the far uh, corner and they said that do you see that that is a clinic before castro we did not have that clinic and we had to uh, walk five miles down all of this and go to the near nearest town to make sure that we got uh, uh, what do you call that uh, healed essentially and so many people have lived uh, because of that uh, and cuba now is a major exporter of doctors uh, that go around the world who do their job extremely well and it also has a robust healthcare system which even created its own covid-19 vaccine very recently that's one thing another thing is their agricultural policies are top notch essentially they have a great um uh, farm system they have farmers that do a lot of the work and pr- and produce enough uh, food for their people because they know the us is never going to allow me to like import anything right so let's just take care of this food business so basically their agricultural system is extremely good they are sus- very sustainable they have been voted as one of the most sustainable countries in the world uh, with regards to agriculture basically and that all was created due to the non-profit mindedness of uh, the socialist uh, system of cuba and i think you know more about stuff like china vietnam uh and uh, laos i don't know much about laos but uh china vietnam and a lot of the other countries uh we have seen this they have it has worked it has worked really well um and not for trying hard basically because they have the, they have undergone so much oppression and pressure from the united states state specifically well on that note thank you so much for joining me today arvin thank you so much That was Arvin Kadir Chelvan. He's the Youth Chief of Party Socialist Malaysia. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out the podcast titled Young People Are Suffering. Is Socialism the Solution? On the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.